Escape Pod 130 November 1st, 2007 Today's story, what we learned from this morning's newspaper, by Robert Silverberg. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely, and today is the first day of NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. This is when thousands of people band together with an ambitious goal, to produce a 50,000-word novel draft in 30 days. I know a lot of you already know all about this, and some of you will be sleeping even less than podcasters generally do this month. I had a really close call. I actually considered doing NaNoWriMo this year. It's certainly been long enough since I've written, and I feel better when I do. But I just started a new full-time job, and PodCastle is still behind on launch, and there's plenty else going on in my life already. So I've had to say no to NaNo with some regret, but that only increases my respect for the people who are doing it. This year, as with every year, there's another hubbub starting up about the value of NaNoWriMo, and whether it instills good habits, or just makes people feel better about putting out large quantities of bad writing. This criticism usually comes from people who write a lot less than people who do NaNo, and often have less to show for it. I can only speak from my own experience. When I was starting out, I was prone to getting blocked very easily, because I had trouble believing in first drafts. I had this conviction that every sentence I put down had to be perfect the first time, and that led to a lot of hours staring at a mostly empty screen. My output was very low, and I was stressed about it. It took one of the instructors at the Viable Paradise Workshop to give me the revelation. She took me by the hand and said, Steve, I give you permission to write badly. I had a finished novel not too long after that, and I have a number of short story sales. There is value in quantity over quality, because you can always add quality in later drafts. You can't do that if you don't have anything to work from. There's also value in community. The community can't make you put words on the page, that's still a solitary endeavor, but setting goals and feeling accountable to them can be a real help. There's no bad reason to start writing. All that matters is what comes out at the far end. So I'm a fan of NaNoWriMo, and if you're doing it yourself, my sincere kudos to you. Feel free to tell us about it in our forums. Our story this week is also about a community effort with an unusual cause. We present What We Learn From This Morning's Newspaper by Robert Silverberg. If you haven't heard of Mr. Silverberg, you're probably really new to science fiction. He lives in Oakland, California, and is one of the most prolific and successful writers in the genre. He has over 600 novels and short stories to his credit in science fiction, and several hundred outside of SF. According to his quasi-official site, he's published under 54 pseudonyms, largely to avoid saturating the market under his own name. This story first appeared in the anthology Unfamiliar Territory in 1973, so keep that time period in mind as the headlines come up. Now sip your coffee, and don't go straight to the sports section. It's story time. What we learned from this morning's newspaper by Robert Silverberg I got home from the office, as usual, at 6.47 this evening, and discovered that our peaceful street has been in some sort of crazy uproar all day. The newsboy, it seems, came by and delivered the New York Times, for Wednesday, December 1st, to every house on Redbud Crescent. Since today is Monday, November 22nd, it follows, therefore, that Wednesday, December 1st, is the middle of next week. I said to my wife, Are you sure that this really happened? 
because I looked at the newspaper myself before I went off to work this morning, and it seemed quite all right to me. At breakfast time, the newspaper could be printed in Albanian, and it would seem quite all right to you, my wife replied. Here, look at this. And she took the newspaper from the hall closet and handed it all folded up to me. It looked just like any other edition of the New York Times, but I saw what I had failed to notice at breakfast time, that it said Wednesday, December 1st. Is today the 22nd of November, I asked, Monday? It certainly is, my wife told me. Yesterday was Sunday, and tomorrow is going to be Tuesday, and we haven't even come to Thanksgiving yet. Bill, what are we going to do about this? I glanced through the newspaper. The front page headlines were nothing remarkable, I must admit, just the same old New York Times stuff that you get any day when there hasn't been some event of cosmic importance. Nixon, with wife, to visit three Chinese cities in seven days. Yes. Ten hurt as gunmen shoot way into and out of bank. All right. Group of ten, in Rome, begins negotiating realignment of currencies. Okay. The same old New York Times stuff, and no surprises. But the paper was dated Wednesday, December 1st, and that was a surprise of sorts, I guess. This is only a joke, I told my wife. Who would do such a thing for a joke? To print up a whole newspaper? It's impossible, Bill. It's also impossible to get next week's newspaper delivered this week, you know, or hadn't you considered what I said? She shrugged, and I picked up the second section. I opened to page 50, which contained the obituary section, and I admit I felt quite queasy for a moment, since, after all, this might not be any joke, and what would it be like to find my own name there? To my relief, the people whose obituaries I saw were Harry Rogoff, Terry Turner, Dr. M. A. Feinstein, and John Millis. I will not say that the deaths of these people gave me any pleasure, but better them than me, of course. I even looked at the death notices in small type, but there was no listing for me. Next I turned to the sports section and saw Nick's streak ended 110-109. to We had been talking about going to get tickets for that game at the office, and my first thought now was that it wasn't worth bothering to see it. Then I remembered you can bet on basketball games, and I knew who was going to win, and that made me feel very strange. So, also, I felt odd to look at the bottom of page 64, where they had the results of the racing at Yonkers Raceway, and then quickly, flip, 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 I was on page 69, and the financial section lay before my eyes. Dow Index rises by 1.61 to 831.34, the headline said. National Cash Register was the most active stock, closing at 27 38 off a quarter. Then Eastman Kodak, 88 and 7 eighths, down 1 and an eighth. By this time, I was starting to sweat very hard, and I gave my wife the paper and took off my jacket and tie. I said, how many people have their newspaper? Everybody on Redbud Crescent, she said. That's 11 houses altogether. And nowhere beyond our street? No, the others got the ordinary paper today. We've been checking on that. Who's we? I asked. Marie and Cindy and I, she said. Cindy was the one who noticed about the paper first and called me, and then we all got together and talked about it. Bill, what are we going to do? We have the stock market prices and everything, Bill. If it isn't a joke, I told her. It looks like the real paper, doesn't it, Bill? I think I want a drink, I said. My hands were shaking all of a sudden, and the sweat was still coming. I had to laugh, because it was just the other Saturday night some of us were talking about the utter predictable regularity of life out here in the suburbs, the dull, smooth sameness of it all, 
And now this, the newspaper from the middle of next week. It's like God was listening to us and laughed up his sleeve and said to Gabriel or whoever, It's time to send those stuffed shirts on Redbud Crescent a little excitement. 2. After dinner, Jerry Wesley called and said, We're having a meeting at our place tonight. Bill, can you and your lady come? I asked him what the meeting was about, and he said it's about the newspaper. Oh, yes, I said, the newspaper. What about the newspaper? Come to the meeting, he said. I really don't want to talk about this on the phone. Of course, we'll have to arrange a sitter, Jerry. No, you won't. We've already arranged it, he told me. The three Fisher girls are going to look after all the kids on the block, so just come over around quarter to nine. Jerry is an insurance broker, very successful at that. He has the best house on the Crescent, two-story Tudor style, with almost an acre of land, and a big paneled rumpus room in the basement. That's where the meeting took place. We were the seventh couple to arrive, and soon after us, the Maxwells, the Bruces, and the Thomasons came in. Folding chairs were set out, and Cindy Wesley had done her usual great trays of canapes and such, and there was a lot of liquor, self-service at the bar. Jerry stood up in front of everybody and grinned and said, I guess you've all been wondering why I called you together this evening. He held up his copy of the newspaper. From where I was sitting, I could make out only one headline. Clearly it was, Ten Hurt as Gunmen Shoot Way Into and Out of Bank, but that was enough to enable me to recognize it as THE newspaper. Jerry said, Did all of you get a copy of this paper today? Everybody nodded. You know, Jerry said, that this paper gives us some extraordinary opportunities to improve our situation in life. I mean, if we can accept it as the real December 1st edition and not some kind of fantastic hoax, then I don't need to tell you what sort of benefits we can get from it, right? Sure, Bob Thomason said, but what makes anybody think it isn't a hoax? I mean, next week's newspaper, who could believe that? Jerry looked at Mike Nesbitt. Mike teaches at Columbia Law and is more of an intellectual than most of us. Mike said, Well, of course, the obvious conclusion is that somebody's playing a joke on us. But have you looked at this newspaper closely? Every one of those stories has been written in a perfectly legitimate way. There aren't any details that ring false. It isn't like one of those papers where the headlines have been cooked up, but the body of the text is an old edition. So we have to consider the probabilities. Which sounds more fantastic? That someone would take the trouble of composing an entire fictional edition of the Times, setting it in type, printing it, and having it delivered? Or that through some sort of fluke of the fourth dimension, we've been allowed a peek at next week's newspaper? Personally, I don't find either notion easy to believe, but I can accept fourth-dimensional hocus-pocus more readily than I can the idea of a hoax. For one thing, unless you've had a team the size of the Times' own staff working on this newspaper, it would take months and months to prepare it. And there's no way that anybody could have begun work on the paper more than a few days in advance, because there are things in it that nobody could have possibly known as recently as a week ago. Like the Phase 2 stuff and the fighting between India and Pakistan. But how could we get next week's newspaper, Bob Thomason still wanted to know. I can't answer that, said Mike Nesbitt. I can only reply that I am willing to accept it as genuine. A miracle, if you like. So am I, said Tim McDermott, and a few others said the same. We can make a pile of money out of this thing, said Dave Bruce. Everybody began to smile in a strange, strained way. Obviously everybody had looked at the stock market stuff and the racetrack stuff and had come to the same conclusions. Jerry said, There's one important thing we ought to find out first. Has anybody here spoken about this newspaper to anybody who isn't currently in this room? 
People said, nope, and uh-uh, and not me. Good, said Jerry. I propose we keep it that way. We don't notify the Times, and we don't tell Walter Cronkite, and we don't even let our brother-in-law in Dogwood Lane know. We just put our newspapers away in a safe place and quietly do whatever we want to do about the information we've got. Okay? Let's put that to a vote. All in favor of stamping this newspaper top secret, raise your right hand. Twenty-two hands went up. Good, said Jerry. That includes the kids, you realize. If you let the kids know anything, they'll want to bring the paper to school for show and tell, for Christ's sake. So cool it, you hear? Sid Fisher said, Are we going to work together on exploiting this thing, or do we each act independently? Independently, said Dave Bruce. Right, independently, said Bud Maxwell. It went all around the room that way. The only one who wanted some sort of committee system was Charlie Harris. Charlie has bad luck in the stock market, and I guess he was afraid to take any risks, even with a sure thing like next week's paper. Jerry called for a vote, and it came out ten to one in favor of individual enterprise. Of course, if anybody wants to team up with anybody else, I said, there's nothing stopping anybody. As we started to adjourn for refreshments, Jerry said, Remember, you only have a week to make use of what you've been handed. By the 1st of December, this is going to be just another newspaper, and a million other people will have copies of it. So move fast while you've got an advantage. 3. The trouble is, when they give you only next week's paper, you don't ordinarily have a chance to make a big killing in the market. I mean, stocks don't generally go up 50% or 80% in just a few trading sessions. The really broad swings take weeks or months to develop. Still in all, I figured, I could make out all right with the data I had. For one thing, there evidently was going to be a pretty healthy rally over the next few days. According to the afternoon edition of the Post that I brought home with me, the market had been off 7 on the 22nd, closing with the Dow at 803.15, the lowest all year. But the December 1st Times mentioned a stunning two-day advance, and the average finished at 831.34 on the 30th. Not bad. Then, too, I could work on margin and other kinds of leverage to boost my return. We're going to make a pile out of this, I told my wife. If you can trust that newspaper, she said. I told her not to worry. When we got home from Jerry's, I spread out the Post and the Times in the den and started hunting for stocks that moved up at least 10% between November 22nd and November 30th. Levitt's Furniture, Bausch & Lomb, Natomas, Disney, EG&G. Spread your risk, Bill, I told myself. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Even if the newspaper was phony, I couldn't get hurt too badly if I bought all five. So at half past nine the next morning, I phoned my broker and told him I wanted to do some buying in the margin account at the opening. He said, don't be in a hurry, Bill. The market's in lousy shape. Look at yesterday. There were 201 new lows. This market's going to be under 750 by Christmas. You can see from this that he's an unusual kind of broker, since most of them will never try to discourage you from placing an order that'll bring them a commission. But I said, nope, I'm playing a hunch. I want to go all out on this. And I put in buys on Levitz, Bausch, Natomas, Disney, and DG&G. I used the margin right up to the hilt and then some. Okay, I told myself. If this works out the way you hope it will, you've just bought yourself a vacation in Europe and a new Chrysler and a mink for the wife and a lot of other goodies. And if not, if not, you just lost yourself a hell of a lot of money, Billy boy. 4. Also, I made some use out of the sports pages. At the office, I looked around for bets on the Knicks versus the Supersonics next Tuesday at the Garden. 
A couple of guys wondered why I was interested in action so far ahead, but I didn't bother to answer, and finally I got Eddie Martin to take the Knicks by 11 points. Also, I got Marty Felks to take Milwaukee by 8 over the Warriors that same night. Felks thinks Abdul-Jabbar is the best center the game ever had, and he'll always bet the Bucks. but my paper had it that the Warriors would cop it, 106-103. to At lunch with the boys from Leclerc and Anderson, I put down 250 with Butch Hunter on St. Louis over the Giants on Sunday. Next, I stopped off at the friendly neighborhood off-track betting office and entered a few wagers on the races at Aqueduct. My handy guide to the future told me that the double paid fifty-two forty, and the third exacta paid sixty-two twenty. so I spread a little cash on each. Too bad there were no $2,500 payoffs that day, but you can't be picky about your miracles, can you? 5. Tuesday night when I got home, I had a drink and asked my wife what's new, and she said everybody on the block had been talking about the newspaper all day, and some of the girls had been placing bets and phoning their brokers. A lot of the women here play the market, and even the horse stuff, though my wife is not like that. She leaves the male stuff strictly to me. What stocks were they buying? I asked. Well, she didn't know the names. But a little while later, Joni Bruce called up for a recipe, and my wife asked her about the market, and Joni said she had bought Winnebago, Xerox, and Transamerica. I was relieved at that, because I figured it might look really suspicious if everybody on Redbud Crescent suddenly phoned in orders the same day for Levitz, Bausch, Disney, Natomas, and EG&G. On the other hand, what was I worrying about? Nobody would draw any conclusions, and if anybody did, we could always say we had organized a neighborhood investment club. In any case, I don't think there's any law against people making stock market decisions on the basis of a peek at next week's newspaper. Still and all, who needs publicity? And I was glad we were all buying different stocks. I got the paper out after dinner to check out Joni's stocks. Sure enough, Winnebago moved up from 33 and a quarter to 38 and an eighth, Xerox from 105 and three quarters to 111 and seven eighths, and Transamerica from 14 and seven eighths to 17 and five eighths. I thought it was dumb of Joni to bother with Xerox getting only a 6% rise, since it's the percentages where you pay off, but Winnebago was up better than 10%, and Transamerica close to 20%. I wished I had noticed Transamerica at least, although no sense being greedy, my own choices would make out alright. Something about the paper puzzled me. The print looked a little blurry in places, and on some pages I could hardly read the words. I didn't remember any blurry pages. Also, the paper it's printed on seemed a different color, darker gray, older looking. I compared it with the newspaper that came this morning, and the December 1st issue was definitely darker. A paper shouldn't get old looking that fast, not in two days. I wonder if something's happening to the paper, I said to my wife. What do you mean? Like it's deteriorating, or anyway, starting to change. Anything can happen, said my wife. It's like a dream, you know, and in dreams things change all the time without warning. 6. Wednesday, November 24th. I guess we just have to sweat this thing out. So far the market in general isn't doing much one way or the other. This afternoon's post gives the closing prices. There was a rally in the morning, but it all faded by the close, and the Dow was down to 798.63. However, my own five stocks all have had decent upward moves, Tuesday and Wednesday, so maybe I shouldn't worry. I have four points profit in Bausch already, two in Natomas, five in Levitz, two in Disney, three quarters in EG&G, and even though that's a long way from the quotations in the December 1st newspaper, it's better than having losses. Also, there's still that stunning two-day advance due at the end of the month. Maybe I'm going to make out all right. 
Winnebago, Transamerica, and Xerox are also up a little bit. Markets close tomorrow on account of Thanksgiving. 7. Thanksgiving Day. We went to the Nesbits in the afternoon. It used to be that people spent Thanksgiving with their own kin, their aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins, etc., but you can't do that out here in a new suburb, where everybody comes down someplace far away, so we eat the turkey with neighbors instead. The Nesbits invited the Fishers, the Harrises, the Thomasons, and us, with all the kids, of course, too. A big, noisy gathering. The Fishers came very late, so late that we were worried and thinking of sending someone over to find out what was the matter. It was practically time for the turkey when they showed up, and Edith Fisher's eyes were red and puffy from crying. My God, my God, she said. I just found out my older sister is dead. We started to ask the usual meaningless, consoling questions, like, was she a sick woman, and where did she live, and what did she die of? And Edith sobbed and said, I don't mean she's dead yet. I mean she's going to die next Tuesday. Next Tuesday? Tammy Nesbitt asked. What do you mean? I don't understand how you can know that now. And then she thought a moment, and she did understand, and so did the rest of us. Oh, Tammy said, the newspaper. The newspaper, yes, Edith said, sobbing harder. Edith was reading the death notices, Sid Fisher explained. God knows why she was bothering to look at them, just curiosity, I guess, and all of a sudden she lets out this terrible cry and says she sees her sister's name. Sudden passing, a heart attack. Her heart is weak, Edith told us. She's had two or three bad attacks this year. Lois Thomason went to Edith and put her arms around her, the way Lois does so well, and said, There, there, Edith. It's a terrible shock to you, naturally. But you know, it must have been inevitable, sooner or later. And at least the poor woman isn't suffering any more. But don't you see, Edith cried. She's still alive right now. Maybe if I phone and say, go to the hospital right away, they can save her? They might even put her under intensive care and get ready for the attack before it comes. Only I can't say that, can I? Because what can I tell her? That I read about her death in next week's newspaper? She'll think I'm crazy, and she'll laugh, and she won't pay any attention to me. Or maybe she'll get very upset and drop dead right on the spot, all on account of me. What can I do? Oh, God, what can I do? You could say it was a premonition, my wife suggested. A very vivid dream that had the ring of truth to you. If your sister puts any faith at all in things like that, maybe she'll decide it can't hurt to see your doctor, and then... No, Mike Nesbitt broke in. You mustn't do any such thing, Edith, because they can't save her. No way. They didn't save her when the time came. The time hasn't come yet, said Edith. So far as we're concerned, said Mike, the time has already come because we have the newspapers that describe the events of November 30th in the past tense. So we know your sister is going to die, and to all intents and purposes, is already dead. It's absolutely certain, because it's in the newspaper, and if we accept the newspaper as authentic, then it's a record of actual events, beyond any hope of changing. But my sister, Edith said. Your sister's name is already on the roll of the dead. If you interfere now, it'll only bring unnecessary aggravation to the family, and it won't change a thing. How do you know it won't, Mike? The future mustn't be changed, Mike said. For us, the events of that one day in the future are as permanent as any event in the past. We don't dare play around with changing the future, not when it's already signed, sealed, and delivered in that newspaper. For all we know, the future's like a house of cards. If we pull one card out, say your sister's life, we might bring the whole house tumbling down. You've got to accept the decree of fate, Edith. You've got to. Otherwise, there's no telling what might happen. My sister, Edith said. 
My sister's going to die, and you won't let me do anything to save her. 8. Edith carrying on like that put a damper on the whole Thanksgiving celebration. After a while, she pulled herself together, more or less, but she couldn't help behaving like a woman in mourning, and it was hard for us to be very jolly and thankful with her there choking back the sobs. The Fishers left right after dinner, and we all hugged Edith and told her how sorry we were. Soon afterward, the Thomases and the Harrises left too. Mike looked at my wife and me and said, I hope you aren't going to run off also. No, I said, not yet. There's no hurry, is there? We sat around some while longer. Mike talked about Edith and her sister. The sister can't be saved, he kept saying, and it might be very dangerous for everybody if Edith tries to interfere with fate. To get the subject away from Edith, we started talking about the stock market. Mike said he had bought Natomis, Transamerica, and Electronic Data Systems, which he said was due to rise from 36 and 3 quarters to 47 by the 30th. I told him I had bought Natomis too, and I told him my other stocks, and pretty soon he had his copy of the December 1st paper out, so we could check some of the quotations. Looking over his shoulder, I observed that the print was even blurrier than it seemed to me Tuesday night, which was the last occasion I had examined my paper, and also the pages seemed very gray and rough. What do you think is going on? I said. The paper definitely seems to be deteriorating. It's entropic creep, he said. Entropic creep? Entropy, you know, is the natural tendency of everything in nature to come apart at the seams as time goes along. These newspapers must be subject to unusually strong entropic strains because of their anomalous position out of their proper place and time. I've been noticing how the print is getting harder to read, and I wouldn't be surprised if it became completely illegible in another couple of days. We hunted up the prices of my stocks in his paper, and the first one we saw was Bausch & Lohm hitting a high of 149 and three quarters on November 30th. Wait a second, I said. I'm sure the high is supposed to be 149 even. Mike thought it might be an effect of the general blurriness, but no, it was still quite clear on that page of stock market quotations, and it said 149 and three quarters. I looked up Natomis, and the high that was listed was 56 and seven eighths. I said, I'm positive it's 57, and so on with several other stocks. The figures didn't jibe with what I remembered. We had a friendly little discussion about that, and then it became not so friendly as Mike implied my memory was faulty, and in the end I jogged down the street to my place and got my own copy of the paper. We spread them both out side by side and compared the quotes. Sure enough, the two were different. Hardly any quote in his paper matched those in mine, all of them off an eighth here, a quarter there. What was even worse, the figures didn't quite match the ones I had noted down on the first day. My paper now gave the Bausch high for November 30th as 149.5, and Natomas as 56.5, and, and Disney as 117. Levitt's 104, EG&G 23 and 5 eighths, Everything seemed to be sliding around. It's a bad case of entropic creep, Mike said. I wonder if the newspapers were ever identical to each other, I said. We should have compared them on the first day. Now we'll never know whether we all had the same starting point. Let's check out the other pages. We compared things. The front page headlines were all the same, but there were little differences in the writing. The classified ads had a lot of rearrangements. Some of the death notices were different. All in all, the papers were similar, but not anything like identical. How can this be happening? I asked. How can words on a printed page be different one day from another? How can a newspaper from the future get delivered in the first place? Mike asked. 
9. We phoned some of the others and asked about stock prices. Just trying to check something out, we explained. Charlie Harris said Natomas was quoted at 56, and Jerry Wesley said it was 57 and a quarter, and Bob Thomason found that the whole stock market page was too blurry to read, although he thought the Natomas quote was 57 and a half. And so on. Everybody's paper slightly different. Entropic creep. It's hitting hard. What can we trust? What's real? 10. Saturday afternoon, Bob Thomason came over very agitated. He had his newspaper under his arm. He showed it to me and said, Look at this, Bill. How can it be? The pages were practically falling apart, and they were completely blank. You could make out little dirty traces where there once had been words, but that was all. The paper looked about a million years old. I got mine out of the closet. It was in bad shape, but not that bad. The print was faint and murky, yet I could still make some things out clearly. Natomas, 56 and a quarter. Levitt's Furniture, 103 and a half. Disney, 117 and a quarter. New numbers all the time. Meanwhile, out in the real world, the market has been rallying for a couple of days, right on schedule, and all my stocks are going up. I may go crazy, but at least it looks like I'm not going to take a financial beating. 11. Monday night, November 29th. One week since this whole thing started. Everybody's newspaper is falling apart. I can read patches of print on two or three pages of mine, and the rest is pretty well shot. Dave Bruce says his paper is completely blank, the way Bob's was on Saturday. Mike's is in better condition, but it won't last long. They're all getting eaten up by entropy. The market rallied strongly again this afternoon. Yesterday the Giants got beaten by St. Louis, and at lunch today I collected my winnings from Butch Hunter. Yesterday also, Sid and Edith Fisher left suddenly for a vacation in Florida. That's where Edith's sister lives. The one is supposed to die tomorrow. 12. I can't help wondering whether Edith did something about her sister after all, despite the things Mike said to her at Thanksgiving. 13. So now it's Tuesday night, November 30th, and I'm home with the Post and the closing stock prices. Unfortunately, I can't compare them with the figures in my copy of Tomorrow's Times, because I don't have the paper anymore. It turned completely to dust, and so did everybody else's. But I still have the notes I took the first night when I was planning my market action. And I'm happy to say everything worked out perfectly, despite the effects of entropic creep. The Dow Industrials closed at 831.34 today, which is just what my record says. And looking at the list of highs for the day, where my broker sold me out on the nose... Whatever this week has cost me a nervous aggravation, it's more than made up in profits. Tomorrow is December 1st, finally, and it's going to be funny to see that newspaper again. With the headlines about Nixon going off to China, and the people wounded in the bank robbery, and the currency negotiations in Rome. Like an old friend coming home. 14. I suppose everything has to balance out. This morning before breakfast, I went outside as usual to get the paper, and it was sitting there in the bushes. But it wasn't the paper for Wednesday, December 1st, although this is, in fact, Wednesday, December 1st. What the newsboy gave me this morning was the paper for Monday, November 22nd, which I never actually received the day of the first mix-up. That in itself wouldn't be so bad, but this paper is full of stuff I don't remember from last Monday as though somebody had reached into last week and switched everything around, making up a bunch of weird events. Even though I didn't get to see the Times that day, I'm sure I would have heard about the assassination of the governor of Missouri, and the earthquake in Peru that killed 10,000 people, and Mayor Lindsay resigning to become Nixon's new Secretary of State. 
especially Mayor Lindsay resigning. This paper has to be a joke. But what about the one we got last week? How about those stock prices and the sports results? When I get into the city this morning, I'm going to stop off first thing at the New York Public Library and check the file copy of the November 22nd Times. I want to see if the library's copy is anything like the one I just got. What kind of newspaper am I going to get tomorrow? 15. Don't think I'm going to get to work at all today. Went out after breakfast to get the car and drive to the station, and the car wasn't there, nothing was there, just gray, everything gray. No lawn, no shrubs, no trees, none of the other houses in sight, just gray like a thick fog, swallowing everything up at ground level. Stood there on the front step, afraid to go into that gray. Went back into the house, woke up my wife, told her. What does it mean, Bill? she asked. What does it mean? Why is it all so gray? I don't know, I said. Let's turn on the radio. But there was no sound out of the radio, nothing on the TV, not even a test pattern. The phone line dead, too, everything dead. And I don't know what's happening or where we are. I don't understand any of this, except that this must be a very bad case of entropic creep. All of time must have looped back on itself in some crazy way, and I don't know anything. I don't understand a thing. Edith, what have you done to us? I don't want to live here anymore. I want to cancel my newspaper subscription. I want to see my house. I want to get away from here, back into the real world. But how? How? I don't know. It's all gray, gray, everything gray, nothing out there, just a lot of gray. And that was our story. Personal note. I recorded this story at Cunning Minx's place. I'm visiting her right now. And standing in her studio and reading that last line, gray, gray, everything gray, just a lot of gray, was really odd. Maybe ten of you will get that and find it funny. So, our story a few weeks ago was Christine Catherine Rush's results about the impact that designer babies and thorough genetic testing might have on people with more limited means. This story stirred up a lot of discussion. There were positives. Tech Noir said, Someone once said that sci-fi is not about the future, but the present. This is a strong example of this. And there were negatives. E.g. Cathode Ray, who said, Worst escape pod ever. Was that a story or a polemic? There was a lot of division about this piece, but it was almost entirely about the ideas. And the bulk of the discussion came down to, Is this a believable dilemma? What would I do in a situation like this? Some people posted what they had done in situations like this. With nearly a hundred comments between the forums and the blog, it definitely got people thinking and talking. Polemic or not, I'm pleased to see people engaged. We've got some more stories coming up from Miss Rush that I'm really looking forward to. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So you can form a neighborhood committee to talk about Escape Pod if you wish. Just don't change us, and if you figure out a way to make money off of us, I hope you'll let me in on it. Even better, if you like the story, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, consider donating a few dollars via the PayPal link on our site, so that we can keep this going well beyond the Nixon administration. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from groundbreaking computer scientist Alan Kay, who helped develop windowing UIs and object-oriented programming. He said, The best way to predict the future is to invent it. We'll see you one week in the future. Until then, have fun. <laughs>